Brittany, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to talk to your uh, to you about your background a bit. How did you get into post-conviction work? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I got into it in law school. So I am a CPA as well. So I was a CPA before law school. And it was kind of a natural gravitation for me to go into corporate law. Uh, but I took a critical race theory course in law school that truly changed the trajectory of my of my path. And so I began representing a woman named Sharonda Jones uh, in law school. And that really got me into the into the work. My understanding is that you were a corporate lawyer before you transitioned to this kind of work. How did that transition take place? Yeah, so all the while I practiced corporate law, I would work pro bono on post-conviction cases of people like Sharonda Jones who were serving life sentences in federal prison under draconian drug laws. And so I represented several people all while I was working as a corporate lawyer. So when I resigned from corporate law, it was truly to follow my passion to transform unjust systems and continue the pro bono work that I was doing. Now, a lot of the work that you're doing is a consequence of what's called the war on drugs, right? Can you talk to me about what that is and discuss how that's impacted your line of work? Yeah, you know, the war on drugs is over 50 years old at this point and was announced under the premise, you know, of cleaning up our communities and stopping this push of drugs in the streets. And, and it really turned out to be a war on poor people and a war on people of color. And what I learned from, even as a lawsuit and getting deeper into the roots of this, during the height of the war on drugs, it, it really stemmed in part from the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act that ushered in mandatory minimums, that ushered in this 100 to 1 ratio between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, which means you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine, I could have only 5 grams of crack, and we would receive the same sentence in prison. And what this law did was not only brought in this 100 to 1 sentencing disparity, but it also disproportionately impacted Black and brown people and who were in federal prison for drugs. And so I learned about the consequences of the war on drugs in law school, but it really touched me personally. My mother had a drug addiction when I was growing up that unfortunately led to her incarceration. And so I saw the impact on the war on drugs firsthand. Uh, I was very proximate to the situation through my own mother who needed rehabilitation, not prison. Now, our prison system, you know, is designed, they say it's designed to rehabilitate people, right? You go in there and the mechanisms in jail are supposed to address the underlying reasons as to why you're there. In your experience, does the prison system here in the U.S. do that? Absolutely not. I would say absolutely not. I feel that America has this addiction uh, to incarceration. That is a true indictment on the system itself. And sadly, through America's addiction to incarceration, it's just led to overpunishing people to the extent my own mother, for example, you know, if it wasn't for her finding something deep within herself, 
you know, I, I hate to see how things would have turned out, but I, I say often that my mother became sober in spite of a prison, not because of it. What are the roles of prosecutors in these cases? How much discretion do they have? How much leeway do they have? What work did they do that impacts good or bad on how these cases turn out? You know, my eyes were open a great deal to the role and the power that prosecutors have. I don't think I was very aware until I really started getting into the nitty gritty of the federal work. And I'll give you a, a, an example. You know, I'm sure many people have heard of the three strikes law, you know, three strikes and you are out. So your third drug felony, if it's a federal conviction, it was a mandatory life without the possibility of parole conviction, no matter how small your two prior drug convictions were, no matter when they occurred. And so one of my clients, Chris Young, for example, had two prior drug felonies, one when he was 18 for six or seven grams of crack, one when he was 19 for less than 0.5 grams of crack. We're talking crumbs here. And these two prior low-level convictions from when Chris Young was a teenager were used to enhance his federal conviction to the extent where he had a mandatory life sentence that he was facing. And what I learned in his case and many others was it's the prosecutor's sole discretion to choose to enhance the sentence. And so in these situations, when the prosecutor chooses to enhance the sentence, there's nothing the judge can do. And so I, what I learned is the prosecutors in these instances have more power than the judge. How often have you seen things like prosecutorial misconduct, Brady violations? These things have come to the forefront over the past decade or so in the United States. Is that something you've seen happen often uh, in these cases? I don't see Brady violations very much in federal drug cases. Part of that is because the federal government has this tool that they use under the law called federal drug conspiracy. And in many of the cases, over 90% of the cases that I've seen, there are no drugs. There's only the testimony of co-conspirators or, or co-defendants who are testifying and of course, receiving lighter sentences as a result of, of cooperating with the government. And so in many, many cases, cases like Sharonda Jones, for example, while she was held accountable for 24 kilograms of crack cocaine, she was never caught with any drugs, never on any drug surveillance, no controlled drug buys, no large quantities of cash. She was convicted solely based on the testimony of other people, including the drug supplier. <laughs> who testified that he was trafficking in hundreds of kilos of powder cocaine. And by the time I took on Sharonda's case, she was serving her 10th year of a life sentence for drugs. Very first conviction, felony or otherwise. And the drug supplier was free. How dangerous are conspiracy laws, right? Conspiracy is kind of a catch-all phrase. That means that the government can use a certain legal mechanism to hold parties responsible for conduct that they may have known about or agreed to without engaging in, in, in that particular conduct. How prevalent are these conspiracy cases? How problematic are they? Oh, they're extremely prevalent in the federal system, especially as it relates to drug cases. And they're very problematic, in my opinion, because as I mentioned, people can be convicted and lose their 
liberty for life, there's no parole in the federal system. So life is life. So you have people because of federal drug conspiracy charges, people like Sharonda Jones, people like my client, Alice Johnson, who received clemency from, from Donald Trump, people like them who were sentenced under these conspiracy laws that were sentenced to spend the rest of their natural life in prison based almost solely on the testimony of other people. So it's it's very problematic. It gives the federal government a wide net to cast to secure convictions and especially in the in the drug realm. And yeah, I think conspiracies are very problematic. The other thing with conspiracies is if you're caught up in one, you are likely going to be held accountable for the quantity of drugs that encompasses the entire conspiracy. And that that's all uh, very problematic as it relates to relevant conduct. What is clemency? Great question. To me, to me, clemency is where justice meets mercy. And it is a power granted to the president through the United States Constitution, the sole exclusive power granted to the president. And yeah, it really, if yielded and used in the right way, gives the president a chance to restore a sense of fairness that is supposed to be at the heart of our criminal legal system. What differences do you see in your work on the federal level and on state levels across the country? Oh, there's, there's many differences. Of course, you know, this country incarcerates more people than almost any uh, Western country. And most of the people, over 90% are incarcerated at the state level. Only about 10% are incarcerated at the federal level. And there's lots of differences. You don't, you don't hardly ever see people in state court getting life without parole sentences for drugs. You hardly ever see that. So there's a big difference there. There's you're serving 85% of your time. If you don't have life in prison, you're serving 85% of your time on the federal level. There's no parole. You know, there's really a way, hardly any way to get out of it on the federal level. I am heartened looking at across the board at states as there's lots more diversion programs, alternative courts. There's lots more progress, even as it relates to decriminalization of drugs and, and marijuana, you know, but there, we still have a long, long way to go, state and federal. What kind of checks and balances can be placed on prosecutors to help regulate prosecutorial discretion? I truly do not feel that prosecutors sh should have sole discretion in, in hardly anything, let alone sole discretion to be able to hand a person's sentence to life without the possibility of parole in these federal drug cases without the judge having any say. There's certain judges we've seen, like former federal judge Kevin Sharp out of Middle District of Tennessee in Nashville, who are speaking out against the bench at this unfeathered power that binds the hands of judges. And so I think there should be lots of checks and balances in place to ensure that this discretion that prosecutors have doesn't go unchecked. And, and part of it is because it really depends, too, on your zip code. We've seen with these 851 enhancements, for example, 60 miles apart from the Southern District of Georgia to the Northern District of Florida, 
where same amount of people could qualify for this three strikes punishment. But in the Northern District of Florida, prosecutors there pursue 851 three strikes enhancements in almost 75 to 99% of the cases. While in Georgia, the Southern District of Georgia, prosecutors hardly ever pursue the 851 three strikes enhancement, even though they could. And so that type of unchecked power creates these wide disparities in sentencing across the country to where you could be sentenced 60 miles away and face a, a life sentence. And that's just truly, truly unjust. The problem, it seems to me, is that many prosecutors are elected, particularly on the state level, right? And so it becomes a political question. And so any overseeing body, any real oversight would have to be put forth by a politician or by some political entity, right? So you encounter that problem. Is that something that you think is 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 difficult to fix? I think it it is hard to fix. And you're right. The, on the federal level, they're not elected, which is where most of my work is. Uh, yeah, you're right. On the state level, they're elected. But I think there's hope in the process, right? In this democratic process where the people should be electing who they who they want for these for these roles. And I think being able to be educated fully about who we're electing and ensuring that their principles and values are aligned with ours is very important in in state and local elections. And yeah, I think there's there's just a need across the board for transformation of the criminal legal system. I think we have to get to a point where we are reimagining what justice looks like in this country. Tell me about Buried Alive. Yeah, the Buried Alive Project is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with two of my clients, Sharonda Jones and Corey Jacobs. They were both serving life sentences in federal prison under these draconian drug laws, and they were both granted clemency by President Barack Obama. When they were granted clemency, you know, people feel sort of a survivor's remorse, you know, if you will. They're leaving behind people they've served decades in prison with who they know are just as deserving of a second chance as they are. And so Sharonda, Corey, and I linked arms to form the Buried Alive Project where we fight to free people who are serving these unjust sentences under these heavy, heavy federal drug laws. And so to date, we have helped free 62 men and women who were serving life without parole sentences. And yeah, very proud of the work that we do and that we've done and have lots more to go. Obviously, doing this in various jurisdictions around the country requires a set of lawyers who are admitted in various places around the country. How do you guys go about recruiting lawyers, securing legal representation for these folks? Yeah, well, I represent a great majority of them myself, so I have to go around and find local counsel to help sponsor my admission. And we've been very fortunate to partner with several big law firms like Aiken Gump and Sidley Austin and Holland and Knight, who stepped up to truly help us uh, in this area. Law firms like Aaron Fox out of D.C. So they help sponsor our pro hoc admissions. They help tag team to take cases pro bono. So I spent a lot of my time over the past couple of years or so getting out there and training as many lawyers as I can to be able to help take on these cases. 
How did you facilitate the release as the story goes of 17 people in 90 days? Yeah, putting my head down and working with my brilliant co-counsel, my angel Cody, to get as many people free as we could. You know, this whole 90 days of freedom campaign we had started as kind of a dare to each other. We're texting each other. The first step act had passed and we're like, well, let's see how many people we can get free in 90 days. So we started with our own money, our own resources, flying across the country, appearing in courts, resentencing hearings, trying to get as many people free as possible. And it really, truly was two women lawyers, my angel Cody and I, who linked arms and worked extremely hard uh, for several months there to ensure the freedom of 17 men who were serving life sentences and who on average had already served 20 years or more of their sentences. Tell me about the First Step Act and how that's impacted your practice. Yeah, the First Step Act is just that. It's a first step. It gave us a first step uh, back into the court to be able to litigate freedom for many, many deserving people. As I mentioned, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act earlier put into place these harsh 100 to 1 ratios and mandatory minimums. There's been several reforms, for lack of a better term, along the way. President Obama in 2010 signed the Fair Sentencing Act that reduced that 100 to 1 ratio to 18 to 1. And the problem with the Fair Sentencing Act and many of these bills that we see come across is they're not retroactive. And so eight years later, President Trump signed the First Step Act into law, which made the Fair Sentencing Act retroactive. So we were able to go back and help free people who were serving time under old laws, quite frankly. The First Step Act also had three other sentencing reform provisions. That three strikes law that I mentioned where your third strike is mandatory life. Due to the First Step Act, your third strike is now 25 years mandatory minimum, which is still a very long time. However, it can't just be for any two drug felonies. They have to be serious drug felonies. So you had to have gone to prison, they had to have occurred within the past 15 years of your current conviction. And then now one prior instead of 25 years is 15 years. So it brought a lot of reforms with it that we were able to use to get back into court. Um, but I would say, though, there's still a lot of work to do. Of the four sentencing reform provisions, only that one was retroactive, the 18 to 1 ratio. So the, the three strikes law and the changes there, they're, they're not retroactive in the first step act so we're still pushing you know for more retroactivity and for this 18 to 1 ratio between powder cocaine and crack cocaine to be one to one because research has shown you know they're just two forms of of the same drug the narrative goes that these sentencing reforms are bipartisan is that your experience is that something you've seen yes totally something i've seen i don't think we could have had them without bipartisan support, uh, which comes with a lot of sacrifice and compromise along the way as well. Tell me about the Third Strike Project. The Third Strike Project was a project with uh, my co-counsel, my Angel Cody and I, who did the 90 Days of Freedom campaign. On the back of the 90 Days of Freedom campaign, we launched the Third Strike campaign, which was working to raise more awareness about the three strikes law that I'm talking about, to raise awareness that, yes, the first step at ushered in much needed reform 
of the three strikes law, but it was not retroactive. And so you, we really have people serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws because these laws were not made retroactive. And so the third strike campaign was to raise awareness about this disproportionate sentencing, this draconian laws that are not made retroactive. And more importantly, the campaign was to raise awareness about the people, the heartbeats, the people that are suffering under these outdated laws. Talk to me about the case involving Alice Marie Johnson. Is that that's the one with Kim Kardashian, right? Correct. Talk to me about that case. Yeah, Alice is free. I mean, she's she's free. She's thriving. She's doing wonderful. Alice was advocating for herself from prison, and she did this interview with a platform called Mike.com. And Mike.com pushed her her in, video interview out on social media and randomly enough or divinely enough kim kardashian just happened to be scrolling and saw alice's video and in that moment kim was not only moved to tears she was moved to action and she reached out to see how she could help and be of support with alice johnson and i was invited by alice to be on the legal team because i've known alice for for quite some time and yeah the rest is is history which of your clients which of your cases stands out the most Oh, they all do. You know, I think there's just something truly unique about life without parole. I mean, life without parole is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America. It screams a person is beyond hope, but beyond redemption. It, it truly suffocates mass potential as it buries people alive. And every case, every person to still be standing with their spine straight <laughs> under the weight of a life sentence, they're all truly remarkable in their own way. Why did you decide to write A Knock at Midnight? I decided to write A Knock at Midnight to tell the truth. I wanted to tell the truth about injustice that bleeds through America's criminal legal system. I wanted to tell the truth about the brilliance of the people who I met who are behind bars to bring people proximate to elevate their stories. I wanted people to feel the heartbeats of my clients on every single page and to also feel the hope and to be inspired to think of ways to reimagine justice and to truly empower people to live their best life or life after life, as we like to say. You mentioned earlier in the interview about decriminalization. How will that, has that really in some places in the country, but how will it with time impact these kinds of cases and the work that you do? Yeah, I think it'll impact it greatly, you know, especially in the area if cannabis is is, is decriminalized, for example, it really, you know, or I should say legalized, which is what I really push for, you know. There a lot of people wouldn't have these prior convictions to even be able to be enhanced for you know, to be able to spend life without parole in prison. One of my dear friends and clients, Corvain Cooper, were serving life for cannabis. And it was because, in part, he had two prior cannabis convictions. And now this was in the state of California, and now it's legal. You know, thankfully, Corvain is free, he's thriving, and he's doing well. But there's still, you know, 40,000 people incarcerated for the plant. And, yeah, to be able to decriminalize cannabis and legalize it most importantly will, will do a great 
deal of bringing about transformation that is needed. What does our criminal justice system need to change the most, you think? I don't know that I could pick one. I think the system needs to be completely dismantled and transformed to be more fair and just. It is just not the case right now. I think our criminal legal system is flawed in its design. You mentioned a second ago that Alice Marie Johnson did an interview that was picked up on social media. Uh, how has social media helped with these things? Obviously, uh, the audience has grown. The forum is as wide as one can imagine. Has social media helped or hurt in some of these cases to get the word out there, to inform people to the extent that they haven't been informed? I think social media definitely helps to raise awareness. I, I wouldn't go as far to say that it helps get people free because as you and I both know, we need lawyers on the ground rolling sleeves up doing, you know, the uh, progressive activism that we do, you know, but I do, I do believe that social media helps in some cases, in some cases it does not, you know, as an attorney, you know, it's very important that we are conscious in, in working with any social media influencers or celebrities who want to push uh, criminal justice reform to ensure that they are fully informed um, of the facts and that really helping them decide, you know, whether or not this is truly a case that that uh, needs to be at the at the front of social media. Have you seen that public perception as to drug crime has changed in the last several years, decade, perhaps? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as I mentioned, we go from 100 to 1 ratio to 18 to 1 ratio between powder and crack cocaine. And I think people are starting to realize just how unnecessarily harsh these sentences are at, in the in drug cases. And so we've seen the federal sentencing landscape across the board in drug cases uh, make a lot of progress over the past several years. You know, as I mentioned, I, I can't discount the progress that's been made. Um, but I can say at the same time, there's a lot more work that still needs to be done. But there's a huge shift in attitudes and perspectives about these issues that I think, you know, we'll see a lot more change soon. I want to talk about uh, and finish up on perhaps a phrase that I really like called sustainable liberation, right? The idea that folks are released from prison virtually naked without any guidance and how that lends itself to not only recidivism, but problems on the outside that perhaps folks are unfamiliar with. What is sustainable liberation? Yeah, sustainable liberation is a term I use as it relates to people coming out of prison. I think freedom is much more than stepping outside of prison gates. It doesn't begin, your freedom journey doesn't end then, you know, in so many ways, your freedom journey is just beginning, you know, and I think that as I've done the work and helped free so many people, we don't want to keep rescuing people from prison if they're just going to be restored to poverty at the gate, you know, and so we really need sustainable liberation. And to me, that must include equity, ensuring that people who've been impacted by the criminal legal system have a seat at the table, including financial freedom, you know, economic freedom is so key. People need money, you know, and to be able to help 
bring people's dreams and visions to life through entrepreneurship is what I've been working on a lot lately. And it gives me a lot of joy as well, because systemic change doesn't always have to just come from Capitol Hill. Systemic change also can come from the people that we're helping to free. And so sustainable liberation is a liberation that means you're truly, truly free. I want to talk to you about the future. What do you have going on? What kind of work are you doing? How does 2024 and beyond look? Yeah, we're still working on cases through the Buried Alive Project. I don't take on cases personally anymore as I'm working to train more lawyers to, to take the baton. Uh, I'm working on my second book, which I'm excited about, and truly working to build a new initiative I have called Manifest Freedom. And it's where we are working to empower just as impacted entrepreneurs and creatives to empower them with capital, with resources, you know, to be able to thrive and not just survive. And so to date, Manifest Freedom has granted over half a million dollars in capital to, to entrepreneurs and creatives. And we're really excited to really focus on that initiative this year, uh, raise more funds, you know, and be able to help a lot more people. Brittany, thank you so much for your time and your insight. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.